Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. On August 6, 1965, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. Here in Tucson, Congressman Grijalva convened an event entitled Keeping the Promise, a community panel on the Voting Rights Act at the Tucson YWCA. Speakers discussed the promise it continues to hold for countless Americans and the ongoing efforts to undermine that promise 50 years after it became law. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll hear excerpts from this discussion. First up, Congressman Raul Grijalva, followed by Stu Grable. We wanted to have uh, a discussion about the Voting Rights Act, uh, its promise and what it has meant to this nation, and also to, uh, to, to speak to some extent about the challenges facing voter participation in this country and the need to be continually uh, vigilant about what and how uh, people vote and what is put before the barriers that are put before them to prevent that. Uh, in Arizona alone, uh, we've had thousands upon thousands of people uh, that have not been able to vote simply because of restrictions, uh, simply because of purges of voter rolls uh, that were unnecessary. And, uh, and when the Supreme Court ruled and uh, looked at the Shelby section of, of the Voting Rights Act, uh, they essentially did away with pre-clearance. And Arizona is one of those states that forever uh, since the inception of the Civil Rights Act has been a pre-clearance state that requires uh, that before any changes are made in election law, voting sites, uh, criteria for registration, uh, and criteria for voting, that they must get cleared by the Justice Department before that law can go into effect. Once that was suspended, you saw 25 states across the country suddenly come in with more restrictive laws in voting, and Arizona being one of them. The, the Texas Supreme Court struck down uh, recently the ID for Texas, the required voter ID, uh, that people must present some sort of identification, citizenship proof, et cetera. And in, and in doing so, I think it also affects Arizona, since Arizona has that same restriction. I, I asked uh, some folks if they would join with me to talk about a little bit of reminiscing but also a little bit of looking toward the future. Uh, and I'm going to start with, uh, and let me just turn it over to them. They'll make some statements, and uh, everyone has a unique perspective, and I'll talk a little bit about each individual. But, uh, and at the end, if you have any questions, and I will ask some questions of the, of the panel uh, to kind of to move the discussion. But as we go forward, I think that, Congress faces a, a very important decision. There is a bipartisan bill by both the Republican chair of judiciary and the, and the Democrat ranking member uh, to reauthorize the Civil Rights Act. It's been automatically re reauthorized three, four, five times. And for so, this year, it has not been brought up to a vote. And there is a bipartisan bill that basically uh, reestablishes the integrity of the Voting Rights Act and extends the protections that I just talked about in terms of voter participation to the, to the American people. That's essential we do that. And if there was no other way to acknowledge and to celebrate the Voting Rights Act, that seminally and profoundly changed this nation. Uh, I speak for one person. I would not 
And there's a lot of other elected officials, not only of color, but women and younger people that are not participating in the process that wouldn't be in the positions they were in, are in, hadn't been for the Voting Rights Act. And the legacy to speak about and the sacrifice that the Civil Rights Movement went through to get that empowerment of the right to vote established universally for this nation is something that uh, panelists will speak to as well, and, and, the Reverend, uh, and the Reverend more specifically. Let me begin with uh, starting on the way on the left, and no reflection, Stu, but... Uh, and we'll work, gradually work down this way. Uh, Stu Grable has formerly used the Ombudsman for the Pima Council on Aging, uh, a great advocate that's still advocating for the rights and the protections of older Americans and, uh, and the disabled community. Uh, it's been a, a leading voice, rational voice for, for, for the population, but I think overall in a variety of other issues, been a, uh, a good friend and, uh, and a good uh, source of not only information, but uh, advice to us in our office, and we appreciate him taking the time today uh, now that he's semi-retired. The, the great thing about being retired is then you can go do the things that you really want to do. And uh, I think Stu's in that, <laughs> at that point right now. So without any further introduction, uh, let me turn it over to Stu for his opening comments, and then we'll proceed down. Thank you, Congressman, for inviting me here. It gave me an excuse to not have to take care of our new puppy at home. <laughs> so I dumped the new puppy on my wife and ran out here. Uh, it's important when we talk about voting rights to recognize something uh, that is true about all laws. And that is that laws are only useful if they're enforceable. There are people who believe uh, uh, that without laws there is chaos, and that is the truth. But there are other people who believe that all laws are, are, are bad. We have to remember the history of, of this country. Uh, when the uh, Supreme Court goes back to the original intent of the creators of the Constitution, we have to remember that the creators of the Constitution recognized slavery as a legitimate purpose. So if we go back that far, we may not be following what the world is like today. And I think that's one of the things that, that we keep seeing. Uh, the difficulty, uh, the, the reason that the uh, uh, Voting Rights Act was passed was because people who were legitimate citizens of the United States were being denied the ability to vote by people who are in power. Uh, that's pretty simple, a pretty simple statement. And how was that done? It was done by making it difficult to sign up to vote. Uh, why is that important? Well, if we're in a true democracy, then individuals have a right to vote. If we're in a republic, the individuals have a right to elect people who will serve their constituency. Uh, what's happening now is really very interesting. It's a, it's, it's a, a throwback to, uh, to that position uh, 
which 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 was in the United States over 200 years ago, uh, and it doesn't reflect the current complexion of the United States. It doesn't reflect the citizens of the United States. Uh, there are all kinds of unforeseen consequences uh, specifically to uh, uh, the requirements of identification. Uh, first, uh, historically, there has not been a lot of voter fraud. There has not been proven uh, cases in which uh, people who voted uh, changed the, uh, the election in, in the last number of years, especially in Arizona. So the reason for making these changes really doesn't exist. But the unforeseen consequences of these things are really interesting. Uh, who is it who is affected by, uh, uh, by the, the, the new laws, by the changes, by uh, uh, what uh, the Supreme Court has said? Well, often it's those people who can least afford to deal with it. Uh, we had a, a program at Pima Council on Aging where, where the Ombudsman program, which works with uh, individuals who are in facilities and nursing homes, uh, and suddenly all those people in order to vote had to have uh, IDs, state IDs. Well, how does someone confined to a nursing home who can no longer drive get access to that license? if they have to go to the Motor Vehicle Bureau. Who's going to take them? Who's going to wait with them? How are they going to be able to do that? That's also true for, uh, for many disabled individuals. So people who you would think would be able to, to, to get their licenses can't just because of physical problems. Second group that's, that's really affected uh, uh, that, that's really affected by that are those without documentation. Those of us who, who remember uh, uh, post-World War II remember that one of the issues in uh, both communist and, uh, and fascist nations was that everybody had to have uh, their documents. Where are your papers? Uh, in the United States, we were free of that. We did not have, we, we were just people. Everybody had the same rights. Everybody was able to do things. But you need to have your papers. Well, who is affected by that mostly? Uh, there are lots of people in the United States, particularly older people, but also some other types of people, who grow up in an age when documentation was not necessary. And so what seems to be a simple thing becomes much more difficult, uh, in some cases even impossible. Let's say you were born in a, in, in a cabin in the woods. And at that point in time, there was not documentation. There was not a place to register. Or let's say all of the registration took place in your church and your church burnt down. We had many cases of individuals who could not prove that they were here. We literally had one case of a 102-year-old woman who came to the United States when she was five years old. And during that period of time, she lived here, she went to school here, she went to college here, she worked for the uh, Roosevelt administration uh, and had lots of, of service 
But when it came time to register for services, the requirement was that she produce two witnesses who were here when she came into the country. Okay, so trying to find an adult, someone who was an adult when she came into the country, it's 125 years, uh, couldn't, couldn't find anybody. There's no documentation that had anything to do with her, her citizenship. We also, in, in this country, uh, uh, great news for, uh, uh, for people who come here is that children of aliens who were born in the United States at many times were automatically became citizens of the United States. But because it happened automatically, there's no documentation of it. And when you start to require documentation where none exists, you run into, into all kinds of problems. So I, I, I'm going to uh, I'm probably pass my time. I just want to make one other, other point, and that is uh, I am basically not a conspiracy theorist. Uh, but it is very difficult not to see a pattern uh, that is developing uh, that makes it more difficult for those people who do not have money to become eligible and to participate in the process. And that rather than people or populations, we see money being the main issue of, of what's going on now. Uh, so I, I think with what's, <clears throat> what's happening with the diminishing of the uh, of voter rights and the increase uh, of of the corporate world uh, in being considered people uh, that was never intended, even in the constitutional days. The purpose of the corporation is to create business, and for the purpose of business, they are an individual. For the purpose of politics, they have no business in it. They should not be involved. That was Stu Grable from an event entitled Keeping the Promise, a community panel on the Voting Rights Act in commemoration of its 50th anniversary. Up next on 30 Minutes on KXCI Tucson, Congressman Raul Grijalva introduces attorney Vince Rabago. Vince Rabago, a native of Arizona, has been practicing law uh, here in the community and in the state for 20 years. Uh, graduate at the University of Arizona Law School and former assistant attorney general and uh, and former chair of the Pima County Democratic Party. In addition to that, a, a tireless advocate on the issues of voting, voter participation, and trying to maintain the balance between the ability of people to exercise that right and the difficult part sometimes of getting people to participate in using that right and also uh, pushing back uh, legally and otherwise on some of the restrictions that have been put in front of people in, in, in exercising their right to vote. Uh, Mr. Vince Rabago, if, uh, if you would do us the favor. Thank you. A little bit by way of background, as you mentioned, I am a native of Arizona, born and raised seven blocks from the border in, in Douglas, Arizona. Um, uh, Latino, Mexican-American, Chicano, whatever, however you want to describe that background, that's what I am growing up in a small rural town uh, and, and certainly a place where there had been and certainly today and in many places there's still discrimination of different forms. 
But I grew up in a background where, to a family, uh, fortunately, that was involved and participated. And uh, my, my Nana Juana uh, and others in the family it, back in the 30s and 40s would go out and register people and try to get uh, impoverished people in the community, uh, migrant workers, people that worked in the mines and in the smelter there in Bisbee to, to register to vote. Um, same thing with my dad as he grew up and he became a fireman and came back from World War II uh, as a veteran and, and tried to fight for equality and he became a, you know, the voter registration chairman there in Douglas. And so I, I was, I, I don't know that everybody has a background where you have parents and grandparents that are really actively pushing people into the, the process of participation, but I was, I was blessed in that regard. Um, as the congressman mentioned, I, I uh, graduated from the University of Arizona went on to law school, but it was right in between that period of time, the University of Arizona, uh, and before I went off to the University of San Diego School of Law, I went up to Phoenix, where I got, I saw the political process firsthand, and I was a, an intern for the Democratic <coughs> leadership uh, staff of the Arizona Senate. So this was back in 1990. Uh, I had to go out and buy my first suit uh, and, uh, and start doing that, because you know, coming from a rural town in, in, in southern Arizona, it's not like I had never really been exposed to much of that. I didn't have any lawyers in our family. But you saw the raw exercise of political power, both for, for good at that time, because Democrats had greater influence in the state, and then obviously for bad, to the extent that you had a, a sizable majority uh, of, of uh, conservative Republicans that had their own vision for the state. Um, but you know, after law school, as you mentioned, I've, I've been a, a prosecutor. I worked for the California Attorney General, the Arizona Attorney General. And then in returning to Arizona, I got much more involved in politics, was the former Democratic uh, chairman uh, of, the, of the county here. I'm still involved. But I've also been involved both in that process in dealing with vote issues and barriers to voting, whether they be by registration or actually on election day, and also as a, as a private lawyer uh, representing uh, people in the election process, uh, representing uh, the Democratic Party in, in matters uh, regarding initiatives in the state Supreme Court. And I just have a different perspective. I look at this issue from a different array of backgrounds then. Somebody who comes from a, a rural place, somebody who's Latino, who comes from a background that, that understands that, that background and sees that many people don't participate and that the more barriers we create to that and, and create to participation, um, the less reflective our state and our country is of, of, of who really lives here. Um, in terms of, I would just like to focus on a couple of, of, of points, and that is I'd like to sort of piggyback off uh, what Stu has said. He's talked about sort of the demographics. Who is affected by restrictive voting laws? The elderly, college students, people that uh, don't have traditional addresses, Native Americans, people on the Tohono O'odham. Uh, nation. We had many issues when I was uh, involved in, in the Democratic Party with people that didn't have traditional addresses. And they, how, how do you get to register after Prop 200 that was passed in Arizona that required definitive proof of, of address? You know, some people would say, oh, you had to go two miles down here and that's where we live. We go past this area. That's literally the descriptive address. Or they have a P.O. box. Same thing uh, through tribes throughout this state. We are one of the states with the highest number of uh, uh, Indian nations in the country, 22 registered federal tribes. That's the most in the entire country. So we have a high percentage population that affects certainly from a historical perspective 
uh, and, I, and I know the Reverend will talk about this next to some degree, but the, the historical perspective of this is something that we cannot lose sight of. After the Civil War in 1865, it took over 100 years, 100 years of, of, of activity to suppress participation by those that did not want freed men and women our African-American brothers and sisters that were free to vote or participate, did not want them to have power, resisted it, resisted it with violence, bloodshed, and institutional means. So, you know, we're talking over a hundred years passed before Congress had the courage and we had enough uh, uh, luck and timing and, and, and political power to make that change and pass the Voting Rights Act. And it was still resisted after that and, and resisted in many different ways. And it has not been easy. There was an upswing. With 2008, we saw more participation by minorities and African Americans voting than any other election. But at the same time, unfortunately, for many years, there has been a steady campaign to dismantle the doorway to participation that the Voting Rights Act has provided. That was attorney Vince Rabago from Keeping the Promise, a community panel on the Voting Rights Act at the Tucson YWCA. Speakers discussed the promise that continues to hold for countless Americans and the ongoing efforts to undermine that promise 50 years after it became law. This has been part one of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager.